You're listening to WTF 2050. What's Tasmania's future? Thirty years goes like that. I wonder. We've actually shown we can do these sorts of things without risk. There is nothing. Hello. 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 And welcome to What's Tasmania's Future 2050. I'm Anna Bateman. And I'm Leanne Minchell. On this episode, we are talking to Posey Graham Evans, creator of McLeod's Daughters, High Five, and best-selling historical novelist. So we started off by asking Posey, what brought it to Tasmania? I am a bird of passage. It goes like this. I first came here when I was about 14, 15 with my mother, and we had spent nearly two months travelling from Cyprus in the Mediterranean, which had then blown up. My father, the Tasmanian, who'd run away to war, became a Spitfire pilot. And I think the thought of Tasmania got him through being shot down and prisoner of war camp and whatever the hell. There was this green jewel. And it called him home. When uh, Cyprus blew up, my mother and I were thrown onto a RAF Hercules and sent off to El Adam in the desert, in the Libyan desert. And slowly, over two months, she and I made our way by plane and bus and practically camel um, to Tasmania. And I'd left a war zone and I fetched up in 1960s Tasmania. Can you remember Cyprus? Blood oath can I remember Cyprus, absolutely. For a child of 12, it was the most extraordinary enchanting experience. I had my 12th birthday on a beach next to a crusader castle. Wow. Facing Turkey. And I'd been carried there on the back of a donkey. (laughs) Just your average 12-year-old's party. (laughs) Yes, but there was nothing. No footsteps on the sand. Wow. And, And sea, like aquamarine blue. Anyway, so coming here was a big shock. And uh, I was very worried that people didn't speak English. <laughs> I said that to my mother. I was very worried that they wouldn't have heard of the Beatles. <laughs> Swear did, to God. Did you say all this when you got to school? That would have made you popular. Uh, no, I'd been to so many schools that I was yeah. just very savvy. You had to fit in. Uh, well, yeah, it was pretty difficult because I had a very British accent, I suppose. <laughs> Um, um, just imagine you your first day at school in Tasmania oh. saying, I say, do we even know the Beatles? <laughs> no, it was very funny. It was both good and bad. Yeah. What I so desperately wanted was my mother to put on a hat or learn to play tennis the way the other mothers did, which was very politely indeed. My mother, of course, could play tennis with a gin in one hand and she'd take them all down. So she was never going to fit in. Did she work? She was a novelist. She was extravagantly gifted. And in a different era, um, she would have been either a singer or a sportswoman or a full-time novelist. This is true. She had three novels published in London before she was 26. Two out of the three were optioned by Hollywood Studios and then the war happened. Two out of the three. And um, and she wrote three more books. Her last was published when she was 87. Mm. It's quite good if you're going to be a writer, for it to be normal and for it to be around you all the time. It doesn't seem strange. I mean, my mother, when she was writing, would bump into walls because she wasn't there. And I found, to a certain degree, that's how it worked for me as well. I can't read her books because I picked up one and it was too frightening because it was like myself. I was home. one of the 14 schools I went to. <laughs> yes. I was. I went to a girls' school here for 18 months 
after living a life surrounded with paratroopers and men with guns, I, I must have been mentally a lot older than those girls, I suppose. Yeah. I must have been. Absolutely. Yeah. What, what I loved then, what I love now, because um, this is the third time for me that I've lived here. So I came here when I was 14, 15, came back with my first husband, the potter, and lived in Richmond in a ruined, haunted house. But what I love then, now and always is the landscape and the light. Water, clouds, this extraordinary maritime world which conjures up such light. I love it. I yeah. love it. If you left the second time for Korea, what brought you back the third time, this last? Oh, well, my parents had ended up living in Tasmania again. We only lasted here for 18 months. I think it freaked my father out because he'd been away for 20, 30 years. And he got offered a job in Adelaide, so he disappeared for six months to sort things out. They actually ended up moving back down here. And what happened was I would come backwards and forwards to see them. And it got harder and harder to go back to Sydney because Sydney for me was an extraordinary, it was very exciting, but it was all about work. You know, well, Melbourne's like this too, but it's our version of Manhattan. If you're there, you're there to do something specific, I think. That was network TV and that's where all the networks were. Mm. Um, and have you been able to bring any of your work back with you? Do you work absolutely. now? The thing about it is you can do it from anywhere. You know, I live now, Andrew rebuilt a dairy building on our place, a frail building, and we do have NBN on a microwave dish across Signet Bay. Slow as buggery, I might tell you, mm. pardon me, but it is, and that drives me crazy. However, I have successfully developed a project in New Zealand from the dairy, go over a couple of times, do meetings with writers, come back, do the rest of it from there. You don't need to be anywhere else. Mm. You can go and do bombing runs, mm. and this is the future. Do you realise, it seems to me, when you can travel from the Northern Hemisphere to Australia in under four to five hours, imagine Tasmania's future inside 10 years. Imagine. We have to control and think about this now because we will be one of the last really clean, probably safe places on earth that speaks English and has a Western system of law. It feels safe. I, it's, about it. Oh no, it's lovely. We're an island, you know, and an island has that sense of safety. We've got lots of other little islands. If you've got access to a boat, maybe you can sail away. No, no, that's to be ludicrous. But that is one of the greatest changes coming. We have to think about what this island wants and needs to be. What What is the ideal population for an island of this size, for the island of Australia, but also for the island of Tasmania? I think that's a debate worth having. We live in the most exciting of times. I mean, I'm, I'm not daunted by this. I'm astonished by it. Yeah. And the, the notion of what all of that can do for education is the other thing that enchants me. We should be Finland, you know. It seems to me the fundamental big goal is to get bipartisan agreement on paying teachers more and making teaching, nursing um, and the caring professions, desirable jobs. 
Oh, we could have talked to Posey for hours. In a moment, we're going to bring you part two of our chat. But before we do that, a quick reminder that we'd really love to have your thoughts on um, where you think we should be in 2050 and what you think those big ideas are. Please join the conversation on Facebook and go to our website for more resources. And please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Now to get back to our second part of the chat with Posey Graham Evans, author, creator of McLeod's Daughters and High Five. And this time we went to Posey's house, which is, oh my God, it was so gorgeous, wasn't it? Oh, it was really beautiful. <laughs> it was so beautiful. Um, a small cattle farm and a B&B in the Huon Valley near Signet. Which is also only 35 minutes from Hobart. Feels like a total different world away. Yeah, we were sitting in a lovely big room surrounded by these huge windows that looked out onto these green fields and huge gum trees, you know, the kind of views that are literally bringing thousands of tourists from all over the world to this little island every year. So it's over to us and Posey and her 2050 goal. I just love that every window I look out here is framed like it's framing a picture. It is so beautiful. There is not one way that you look that doesn't have something absolutely stunning in it. That's Tasmania. And I think when you live amongst it to the extent we do down here in the Huon Valley, I don't know, every morning I stand on the back veranda. Every night before I go to bed, I stand on the back veranda and I look at the sun coming up or I look at the stars and I breathe it in. I think that now we're such an urban people, if you lose contact with the natural world, what weather looks like when it's coming out of the west, what the water looks like when the wind gets up. If you lose contact with that stuff, it's bad for you. (laughs) (laughs) So, Posey, we are here today to um, have a chat about your WTF 2050 goal. I'm going to frame this. I have one very, very simple goal, but I think it's really resonant. I was gardening over the weekend. I'm not a good gardener, but I'm a keen gardener. And I heard this shocking statistic. Zimbabwe has 91% literacy. Zimbabwe. And in fact, quite a lot of the African countries do have excellent literacy rates. And we currently, what are we, cresting 50% if we're lucky? In some places, yeah. And some places worse. And yet we also, as I understand, have the greatest proportion of postgraduate degrees in the country but they're people who come here to work like at the Antarctic Institute and and one thing and another I have one really simple goal a hundred percent literacy a hundred percent literacy by 2050 everything starts with that but there's a corollary I like that word (laughs) word of the week corollary is this that by that time We in our little state have the highest proportion of postgraduate qualifications, Tasmanian postgraduate qualifications. Nothing against people coming here with magnificent qualifications. It's good for us all. But the kids in Tasmania are the ones that are leading the nation in postgraduate qualifications. I think the ripple through effect of all of that, those two things, 100% 100% literacy, very high postdoctoral or postgraduate qualifications would be amazing. I think it would elevate the debate. You know, we've got, what have we got? We've got 
27 years to do it. I think we should have done it halfway to 2050 so we can take advantage of it. But I'd be happy We've to see it by 2050. Years. 32 years? Yeah. Because it's oh, we have. See, I can't add up. <laughs> I ain't got no postgraduate <laughs> qualifications in. Rosie, sorry. <laughs> I think Tasmania is both blessed and cursed by a sense of isolation that people still feel we have because I think that leads to a mindset that doesn't value what education can and be or might be suspicious of what changes that would bring. It's been like an anvil around people's ankles, this fear of what education might do. Yes, and you have a lot of... I've had quite a few people say to me... You know, we worry about educating our kids because if we educate them, they leave and, and they you, don't come back. And and that's true because you can see it here. Families in the Huon are big and they are very connected, but this is quite a socially disadvantaged area and that's a real argument because people can go and pull fish out of the river. Most people have vegetable gardens to a degree or really still quite a lot of them do. Um, though that's another issue, and they spend a lot of time with one another, you know, camping, fishing, hunting, those sorts of things, which are not fashionable activities. But uh, a great strength. But a great strength. I think in a place like the human, you see the them and us situation and you can understand why traditional families here feel the way they do about education. Some part of the population of Tasmania looks back with great fondness on the days of the Apple Queen, when the whole valley came out and it was just extraordinary and Betty Cuthbert came down and crowned the Apple Queen in like 1962 or whatever it was. Enormous. And that was a coherent society which functioned. Everyone knew everybody. Um, lots of violence, but everybody knew everybody. So there were consequences for your activities and there was a lot of pride in what they did and how they felt about themselves. But now all of the props that had to do with the pride of being a man, being a forester, being a fisherman, all of those are under siege. So men here feel very differently about themselves and there's a dark side to that. But I think it does feed into fear of education, fear of change you know, fear of change. I also think that's old time Tasmania. Mm. And we need to serve the people who are turning 20 or 30 or 10 in 2050. You're listening to WTF 2050. What is Tasmania's future? It strikes me that there's such a balance to be found and it has to be found through goodwill because there's lots of disenfranchised people all around the world, Brexit, Trump, who go, pardon me, I'd, I'd use a word that started with F, you, you can't do that to us. Give us back what we had. Give us our town back. Give us our mind back. Who are you to tell me what to do? So in America they're referred to as the flyover states. I think Tasmania has been... We're out of sight, out of mind. We're almost the Australian version of the flyover state. Mm. Except we're having our moment. Yes, but heat is a temporary phenomenon. 
the bandwagon gets up and the bandwagon moves on. This is years long, this focus, isn't it? You've picked 2050. This is years long. You know, in France, Emmanuel Macron has got five years to try to turn a sclerotic system round. A man without a party. We need our Macron moment because it's very clear that the majority of people think the political machine does not suit them and they look for saviours. So if you want to build, it's easy to kick the props out. You can do it really quickly. But if you want to build a building that lasts, it can't happen without thought and care. That's the other big thing. By 2050, let there never be another monopoly in this state. That would be nice. Of any kind. Yep. Monopolies are naturally encouraged where people have cash and go, I can fix your problem, I'll build you three hotels, but I want this, this and this. Yeah. Like the wood chip deals that were done in the 70s on 25-year contracts at fixed prices and yeah. those sorts of things. And it's very easy to understand. When a, when a government is strapped for cash and needs cash, they're going to be very grateful to anybody who offers it to them. And it's also much easier for a government to accept things like that if you've got a disengaged community or a community with things like lower literacy levels. That's it. Uh, I think that's true. And I think that the communities have much more passionate feelings about their local council than they do because the local council actually impinges on their life. Mm. You know, the local council can be your friend because they might come up and put tar on your road that's been a dirt road for the last 50 years. Yeah. You know, Tasmania is not alone. We're all grappling around the world. Everyone is grappling about what's the next big thing to do. It has to be education. I cannot see that it's not. Everything begins and ends with literacy and education. You've talked about the connectivity of communities. There's also a shift in demographic. We actually do have an ageing population, but it means that we've also got a lot of older people with time and amazing skills in literacy. Resource. Yeah, they're a resource. Yeah. And the thing is that what's, what's happening here is very interesting, I feel. So there are, there are Tasmanians, people that are the descendants of the whites who came here, and, of course, that's six, seven, eight, nine, ten generations out now, and the Indigenous people, and then the incomers. And we are turning Hobart into a university town which I think is great. I personally am greatly in favour. I don't really like the buildings, but that's personal. But putting the university in the middle of the town cannot be anything but good. University towns are yeasty places, so that's good. And if that happens to Launceston as well, it's only fair, for God's sake. But it strikes me that as we become more and more urban the great big cities become bigger and bigger and bigger. I don't care what anybody says. It gets a lot harder to raise kids. People start to look out because they go, I want my child to be able to run down to the back paddock. You should see our grandchildren when they come. Boys from the city, they're gone. (laughs) You know, you coming in? (laughs) If they're hungry, they come in. That's true. You lose your connection to the natural world as a people at your peril. You can't see the stars much in the city at night. You've got lots of other things as a compensation, but the stars speak. I don't care what anyone says. So what I see in the streets of Signet now is I see a lot of young families. You know, the, the little primary school is bulging. People want what Tasmania can still offer. 
I think you're right about the resource that people over 50 represent because the truth is we've all outlived the major figures of history by now. Elizabeth I died at 67. Most of the people the history records, and let's face it, as we know history is written by the winners, mm. would have all been dead mm. by their... Written you know, by the winners and usually the men. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Don't get me started. Um, <laughs> I write historical novels. I think that... To be over 50 and to have the time to think, not that I do at the moment much, not as much as I'd like, is a blessed, blessed, blessed resource. I'm a great believer in the unintended consequences of education. I know everybody goes STEM, you know, we have to be able to code and we have to be able to do this and we have to be able to do that. The very privileged uh, layer who went to public schools and Oxford and Cambridge in the 19th century, very rich people, they didn't really care what they studied. They did whatever they did and they came out and because they had been given this extraordinarily broad education which encouraged them to read everything they could lay their hands on, you know, you'd have a, um, a bloke who'd specialised in Hebrew and Greek and suddenly he's working his way up in the foreign office because it was regarded as you know, a knowledge of ancient societies, a knowledge of Plato and Aristotle, a knowledge of how to actually construct thought and and deduct, you know, out of the great 18th century traditions was a useful thing to teach people. Mm. And then an individual person with spirit and a brain uses that in ways nobody expects. So I don't want to channel people. I just want to give them the tools. The tools, yeah. And let's see what happens. Yeah. Let it be a Petri dish. Yeah. I don't think you can wait till you're five and get into a formal education system or some sort of focused education system. But a lot of the kids that are coming from illiterate families as well, so they're already a little bit behind the eight ball. So I'm wondering if you have any reflections on what you do with that age group. Well, Sesame Street recognised this 40 years ago, and Sesame Street was absolutely aimed at that population of people who both working parents, lower socioeconomics, no time to sit with a kid and read. That was absolutely the philosophy of High Five. We wanted to get little boys up singing and dancing, and we wanted to enchant them with stories, and we wanted to use music as a conveyor of knowledge, because it is. Make them dance, make them laugh, make them sing, tell them stories. If you say to a kid from a family that does not read, that does not have books, sit down and read this book, the kid's not going to do it because it's not familiar, it's not something they want. They want to be on their phones, they want to be texting, they want to be doing whatever they're doing. So it's how to make education relevant and, and how to give the kid, bathe the kid in different seas, you know, um, warmer seas where where things come out that you've never seen or heard before in your life and you fall in love with the sea. That's what you want to do. You want to find a way of enchanting children. You don't want to deliver learning. You want them to become hungry to know more. Mm. And I agree that it may be that at least some households don't see the world in those terms. They don't see the benefits. Let's not Mm. pussyfoot. Yeah. So it's the hungry mind, like the David Walsh's of this world, that educates itself. Yeah. But we want to do better than that. Yeah. 
But the thing about it is, I think the major problem we've all got, the human life is very short, even the lives we've got now. Um, it takes 10, 20 years to to get some earthly wisdom together. Yeah. And then another 10 years to employ it successfully or another 20 years to employ it successfully, by which time there's a whole new generation of people who've come through who discover what you discovered and think they're the first people to do it. it. Yeah. <laughs> and so we, we're very bad at trans... We can transmit knowledge... We're very bad at transmitting wisdom and understanding. Very bad at it. You know, I'm saying we must all be literate. I still think we must be. I think it's just a basic. But there may be forms of communication that aren't traditional literacy. I still think words, and when you know the meaning of a word, like a word, and you actually know what it means, you can use it to make your communication with somebody more precise. Whereas you can show them pictures and it'll conjure up feelings, but it's a harder thing for images to have meaning in the way words do. So here we go, story, as an enchantment tool. If you are enchanted, you are engaged, and you want more, and the ability for story to take you into a broader purpose is the best Thing in the world because you don't have to force those kids to do it they will do it willingly you think also about the me too movement if that's really turning into a female revolution and it may but we I don't think we're going to know for another 20 or 30 years it will be the first time that stories have been weaponized and it will be the first time that stories have built the barricades in the roads of the revolution. That's true. And that's not tangible. No. It's not a thing. It's a concept. Oh, wow. Thank you, Posey. What a woman. What an idea. I was just completely enchanted by her. I could have listened for hours or days and I couldn't take my eyes or my ears off her. If we could all tell stories like Posey, we'd all be enchanted. We would. I didn't we- want to leave. So next week on WTF 2050, ex-anti-discrimination commissioner and another great Taswegian woman, Robin Banks. Here's a little bit. Processes that take the heat down and give people a way to resolve disputes locally are really important, I think, and and particularly in small communities because the formal process of law is both inaccessible to the vast majority of people because of the cost and the technicality of it, but also because of the harm it does to their relationships, unless it's a good process, unless it's an incredibly good process. <laughs> and so, yeah, for me, that's really important. WTF 2050 is hosted by me, Anna Bateman. And me, Leanne Minshall. We are supported by the Australia Institute and all of our excellent music and post-production is by Fletcher Babb. Extra recording, Michael Shelley at The Green Room in Hobart. Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow the conversation on Facebook, Twitter and at our website, wtf2050.org.au.